Well, the task before me in this particular sermon is to consider God's law and his gospel in relationship to the world. And I am convinced that many Christians today have lost an appropriate sense for how to live in the world. Joe Boot has said that some of us have opted for churchianity rather than Christianity. And I tend to think that he's right. When it comes to law and gospel, many believers live as if God's law and gospel have no place in the world out there, but only belong in the church. Another way of making my point is to say that 21st century American Christianity has lost the flavor of the book of Acts. Jesus told them, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. They received God's law and his gospel and they saw it advance out into the world. Many were added to their number. The word of God increased. That was the flavor of the book of Acts. And Christianity did not advance the way one advances down a lazy river. If you've read the book of Acts, it advanced the way a football team advances down the field, three yards in a cloud of dust. It advanced the way the U.S. military advanced up the beaches of Normandy. Advance was costly. But those believers knew that this world was not their home, so they were free to live in the world for Christ. What they did was not done in a corner. Today, too many Christians are satisfied to keep God's law and gospel in a corner. Now it is true that the Baptist tradition has a, had a great commission spirit. We resonate with the idea of going into all the world, especially going into all the world with the gospel. And we, of course, want to lose none of that. I want to repeat, we don't lose any of that, but we should take the whole Great Commission and not half of it. We should not only teach the gospel to the nations, but we should teach God's law too. The Constitution of Grace Baptist Church, the church I serve, says this, quote, we are committed to proclaiming God's perfect law and his glorious gospel of grace in Jesus Christ throughout the world. And I remember coming here to serve alongside Tom and reading that for the first time and chuckling to myself. And I said, I know some Christians that would think that's legalistic. Importing the very proclamation of God's law into the purpose of the church. I think many believers would see that as some attempt like the Muslims to establish a caliphate throughout the world. God's law throughout the world. Taking God's gospel and his law to the world seems strange to many Christians. And that is exactly the case because we've neglected what the Great Commission actually says. Jesus said first that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. That means the earth is his. That means all people are living on his property this is his world, and he gets to set the rules. But there's more. He goes on to tell his church to make disciples, and here's the phrase, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. Too many Christians feel vulnerable to the modern charge from unbelievers when they say, you know, who are you to tell me what to think? 
Who are you to tell me how to live? And friends, I just want to say that is a very simple answer to that question. You say, I know the king of this place. He told me to tell you this. So why do we feel so vulnerable when people say that to us? The reason we do not know what to say is we have bought into the modern notion of the sacred and the secular. We simply neglect the lordship of Jesus Christ. We live as if he does not have all authority here. We speak as if his gospel is a take it or leave it gospel. We speak as if his law is an it works for me law, maybe it will work for you. But that approach is simply not what we see in the scriptures. If we are to rightly relate God's law and gospel to the world, then we must come to see what Christ himself is doing in the world through his gospel and his law. That's very important. When it comes to law and gospel, we need to understand that this is God's law and gospel. This is Christ's law and gospel. And what is the Lord Jesus Christ doing in the world? And I'm quite convinced that 21st century American Christianity idea about what Christ is doing in the world is that Christ is losing in the world. I really think that's where a lot of people are. Christ is losing. So hide, cover up, hold tight. We might sneak out to the cave, the front of the cave, and like fire off a few rounds in the battle, but then we're going to get back there in the cave because we're just on the retreat. I believe that the Bible presents a different picture. We see what Christ is doing presently in the world with his law and his gospel in Psalm 110. I want you to take a Bible and turn there with me. Psalm 110. If you're using the Bibles that are provided in the seats, you're going to find this passage on page 509. This is a psalm of David. David is king in Israel. And he declares these words. You follow, follow along, Psalm 110. I'll begin in verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. In holy garments, from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Christ is extending his law and gospel over the wide earth. Since this is the case, Christians should join him in that work. I find this text to set the stage for a well-lived life. It tells the story of what is really happening in the world so that we might join in the good work that is going on. We are told many other stories about the world. We're told false stories about the world. But here we have the true story of what is happening right in our midst. And I want to simply exposit this text and then make some applications. If you get verse one, verse 1, if you really get this, then your life is just set. It really is. If you 
take verse 1, believe verse 1, you're going to be set. David says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus himself in his ministry referred to this passage, implying, indicating that the Lord in question here is indeed himself. This is Yahweh, the Lord, says to my Lord, that is the anointed one, the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, David is, David is the one who is king, and he's saying the Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord, the anointed one, Jesus Christ. What did Yahweh say to the son? He said, come sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. There's no debate that this is about Yahweh and the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus is to sit there while Yahweh puts Jesus's enemies under his feet. Now we know that the Lord Jesus rose from the dead and we know that he ascended into heaven and we know that he has sat down at the right hand of God the Father. Thus we know that right now Yahweh is making Jesus's enemies his footstool. Right now Yahweh is making Jesus's enemies his footstool. And he says, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And I believe it's fair to say implied is once that's done, the anointed Lord Jesus will get up and indeed return. An honest reading of history must acknowledge that Yahweh is making Jesus' enemies his footstool. Jesus has been ruling and reigning here since his ascension. Sure, it has been a tumultuous ordeal. There have been ups and downs throughout the generations, wins and losses in various nations, but much like our own graph of sanctification, which often goes something like this. In the general, in the main, in the big picture, it's on the up and up in conformity to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so is the triumph of Jesus. More and more, have bowed before the Lord Jesus Christ and been placed beneath his feet. While Jesus sits at the right hand of Yahweh, we hear of what happens down here on earth in verse 2. Yahweh sends forth from Zion the mighty scepter of Christ. He rules in the midst of his enemies. And out of the mountain of God comes the authority of Christ, the mighty scepter of of Christ. The scepter implies kingship. A kingship implies decreeing, declaring law, truth. That authority is not kept in Zion. Notice it goes forth from Zion. What do his people do? That's verse 3. It says that they offer themselves willingly on the day of his power. Well, when was the day of his power? on which his people offered themselves to him. Jesus speaks in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And in association with receiving that power, as the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the church when Jesus ascended into heaven, the Spirit came down upon the church. They received power. And Jesus goes on to say, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the very ends of the earth. These people are clothed in holy garments. 
That is, Christ has provided these holy garments. They are his very own righteousness. We are now dressed in the holy garments that Christ has purchased for us. There is an obscure phrase in verse 3, which likely carries the meaning, the dew of, the, the dew of the, your youth will be yours. This phrase likely carries the meaning of a great number of people offering themselves to Christ like innumerable drops of dew covering the ground at the dawning of a new day. How many were added to their number again and again there in the book of Acts. Verse 4 instructs us that Christ is not only sending forth his law from Zion, but his gospel as well. This king who rules over the wide earth is also a priest. And this is very strange. The kingship of Christ is very clear in the passage. And all of a sudden here in verse 4, we hear that you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Kings conquer. Priests help people draw near to God. Kings are not normally priests. And in fact, King Saul got in a whole lot of trouble in the Old Testament for being a king and trying to function as a priest. That was not his right place. But King Jesus is both a king and a priest. He conquers the enemies of God while also making a way for the enemies of God to draw near to him. You will bow beneath Jesus' feet in one of two ways. You will bow before him in rebellion against his law or you will bow beneath his feet through trusting his gospel. But Jesus is not just any priest. He is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. We meet Melchizedek in the first book of the Bible. He's king of Salem and priest of the most high God. Jesus, like Melchizedek, is both priest king. Melchizedek was a priest king. Jesus is a priest king. Jesus is not like Israel's priests of the Old Testament. They had to offer sacrifices for their own sin. They had shortcomings and therefore fell short of reconciling people to God. They were priests of an old covenant. But Jesus is our great high priest who mediates a new and a better covenant, which is not like the old. He lives forever, so he is always able to intercede for us before the throne of God. If you stop here and you zoom out, the picture is becoming clear. The priest king rules in his world through his law and through his gospel. If he is doing so, then the question for us is, why, why would we be in a corner? If it's true that Jesus is doing this, if it's true that Jesus is ruling and reigning, he has authority in heaven and on earth, he is the great priest king, and he's ruling with his law and his gospel, why would we be satisfied with the flag of secularism flying in the public square? If he is doing so, then why are we silent when our legislators establish laws contrary to God's? I believe we've become so uncomfortable, so afraid about being political. There is a way to be uh, political in the wrong ways. I mean, if Cape Coral is deciding whether they're going to put a new red light in, it's not going to find its way into my sermon. I'm telling you, I promise, it's not going to do it. But when a judge, I believe in Ohio recently, took a child from his or her parents because they refused to let the child transition, 
The question comes to pastors, to ministers of God's world, is does Jesus have authority here or not? Are we willing to say, like John the Baptist did, you can't have her? Why not? Because the priest king reigns here. The priest king reigns here. Because there's a God in heaven. And this is his earth. And he's told us how we are to live. You need to repent. You need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. If the Lord Jesus Christ is doing this, if he's advancing throughout the world with his law and his gospel, why are we muzzled out of fear of losing tax-exempt status? Hear me, I'm not saying that we should sacrifice and just give up tax-exempt status. I'm saying we shouldn't be afraid. We should not be afraid to speak what God has revealed in his word about his gospel and about his law. Preaching the true gospel and the true law to the world will cost you. Offering yourself to Christ on his conquest will hurt. Think about this. Think about our heritage. It hurt John the Baptist to do this. They cut off his head. It hurt Stephen. He was pummeled with stones. It hurt the apostle Paul and Peter. It hurt Polycarp. It hurt Ignatius and Tyndale. It hurt Latimer and Ridley. It hurt Nate Saint and Jim Elliot. It hurt to believe the Lord Jesus Christ, to obey the Lord Jesus Christ, and to proclaim his gospel and his law to a lost and dying world that is in rebellion against God. It hurt them. But are we hurt? Do people utter all kinds of evil things against us for Christ's sake? Are we persecuted like the prophets who came before us? I contend that we have opted to ingratiate ourselves to the culture around us and the false religion undergirding it. We are retreating. We are conceding ground. While saying we love the reformers, we allow our own churches and society to be deformed into something foreign to Christianity. Reformers. It cost them. We are privatizing Christ's gospel and altogether burying his law. Then we reason from our own circumstances, we reason kind of from the ground up, and we're not sure how to reconcile Christ's worldwide claims in our own lives. So friends, we need to go back to first principles. Jesus sits at the right hand of God from which he rules and reigns on earth by his spirit through his law and gospel. And we ought not doubt his power. God speaks through David in verse 5 through 7 of Psalm 110 to remove all doubt about the Lord's ability to bring about this worldwide conquest. He says, the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. David speaks here not merely of a future time. 
God is wrath today. Those who die in their sins die under God's wrath. God shatters kings right now. God saves kings right now. The phrase in verse 11 is a peculiar one and it's powerful. The Lord drinks from the brook by the way and lifts up his head. The image is one of a mighty king who in conquering the enemy has them on the run and he is in pursuit of them. And rather than take a break and and return back to camp and have a full meal so that the enemy can retreat, he will merely drink from the brook by the way, be quickly refreshed and lift up his head again and pursue them all the way. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he is about through his spirit and through his church in the world. Jesus will win the victory through his law and gospel so that every knee will bow and every tongue will proclaim that he is Lord. These things being true, the question is how then shall we live? That's the exegesis of the passage. I want to consider three applications in light of this truth. Number one, I exhort you all to fight the good fight. Anticipate the conflict. Psalm 110 is full of conflict. The book of Acts is full of conflict. But many today want to make peace with the world. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul. He told Timothy, fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. Did you hear that? Paul says, I'm charging you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, you Timothy who made the good confession, you made the true confession. And I'm charging you in the presence of Christ who also made the good confession. Before who? Before Pontius Pilate, when it was costly, I'm charging you, don't let the commandment be stained. Don't let the faith once for all delivered to the saints be stained. Fight the good fight. And so we, like Timothy, have a job to do. We are to keep the good confession unstained, which means there's a real danger of it becoming stained. We've got to grasp this. Places, places have received the gospel, and then they've lost the gospel. Lands have received the gospel, lost the gospel. Churches receive the gospel, they lose the gospel. This is the way it works. And we hear the exhortation of Christ saying, fight the good fight of the faith. We do not physically fight against humans. It's not what we're talking about. But we do fight. Kevin Van Hooser said it well when he remarked that we, quote, wrestle not against flesh and blood, matters in motion, but against isms, against the powers that seek to name and control reality. That is precisely the fight we are in presently. God's gospel is reality. God's law is reality. But there are those who would try to shape conform, control reality rather than accept God's authority to declare what actually is. 
there are those who would shape people's minds to think things are that are not. And to think things are not, which in reality are. This happens all the time. We see this very thing going on in the present transgender pronoun issue. Rod Dreer makes an important point when he says, quote, the pronoun issue is not merely a matter of courtesy. It means something substantively. The use of language creates social realities. Read your Orwell. What we say and how we say it frames the way we perceive and interpret the world. Progressives understand this well, which is why they insist on preferred pronoun usage. By doing so, they are creating facts on the ground when religious and cultural leaders concede this territory for the sake of being nice, they surrender more ground than they realize. They are laying down arms in the face of the ideological colonization of our collective moral imagination. And so put simply, Christians are to help the lost come to the truth. That's what we've been tasked with. Things are a certain way. Water runs downhill, weeds grow in the garden. When you find a hill and you find water, that's what you're going to discover. God made the world. It works in a certain way. The old phrase was right. You don't break God's law. You break yourself against God's law. And therefore, it is not kind or loving to you to allow others to shape things so that you think Something's real that's not real. You think something's true that's not true. This is a part of fighting the good fight. So first, since Jesus is ruling and reigning through his gospel and through his law, we need to fight the good fight. Application number two. The priest king is ruling in his world through his law and through his gospel. We then must proclaim God's law over the wide earth. If I can cut to the chase on this one, many know that there is a fair amount of confusion and disagreement over justice in the evangelical world. And that confusion is inextricably connected to God's law. We're soon to premiere a film called By What Standard? God's World, God's Rules. That film was an effort to warn Christians about ideologies on the rise in our culture and in part influencing Christian teaching and practice. In short, when it comes to justice, you will have justice biblically defined or you will have justice defined another way. You will have justice defined by divine revelation or you will have justice defined by man. You will have God's standard or you will have another standard. We are in the mess we are in because the church has failed to proclaim God's law to the church and to the world. While it is true that the unregenerate man will not obey God's law from the heart. That's true. We're not talking about proclaiming the law to an unregenerate man so that he might be born again. That's not going to work. He cannot obey God's law from the heart because he's unregenerate. And it's certainly true that the unregenerate man cannot be justified by obeying God's law. It does not follow that we should wait to preach God's law to him until he has believed the gospel. That's the mistake. It does not follow that we should preach gospel to him and then preach law to him. We must preach God's law to the world as it reveals God's character. 
It displays to the world who God is and what he requires of them. His holy standard exposes mankind's sin. It leaves them with the knowledge that they desperately need a savior. That's what's going on in our world. When we say we are for the recovery of the gospel and the reformation of churches, we're for the recovery of the gospel because we have assumed the gospel. People don't know. They don't know that they need a mediator, Christ Jesus. They might think about God and they might think they need to know God, but they have no place for a mediator in relationship to God because Whatever God they're thinking about is a figment of their own imagination because he hasn't been portrayed to them through the right preaching of his law that shows that he's holy and he's righteous, that there's no way you're ever going to be reconciled to this mighty God unless he sends forth the perfect righteousness, his son Jesus Christ, to keep the law that you have not kept. And so our own world being downstream from what was more of a Judeo-Christian society has lost the sense of who God is. We say we're one nation under God, but nobody knows that God anymore. And we preach, we try to preach good news to them without magnifying the being of God. We must preach God's law to the world, not only because it reveals God's character and it exposes them in their sin, but we must preach God's law to the world because it restrains sin. This is very interesting because I agree entirely with my brother Jeff Johnson and brother Renahan about that nice uh, green grass and that nice lounge over there that says do not enter. We see it and it exacerbates sin. The, the, the law does that. Tell me I can't have it. I, now I want it more than I did before. And at the same time, the preaching of the law restrains sin. One way it does this is it puts forth the true standard, objecting to people's false standards. If the church fails to proclaim God's law to the world, you can be sure that the world will proclaim its own law. And that law, which the world proclaims, will be unjust. And that unjust law will result in more sin against the true law. And this is precisely what is happening in our day. And rather than the church rising up and preaching the true law, many have bought into the false law and now are laboring, trying to repent of faux sins, fake sins. So here it is. And when you object to that and you say, well, kindly, sir, I'm not going to repent of that because there's actually no standard beneath it that comes from the creator. You're now mean. You're dangerous because you're unwilling to bow to Nebuchadnezzar. And we would politely say, there's a good reason that we can't repent of that fake sin against the fake standard. Because we got far too many real sins to repent of. I can't waste my time repenting of fake sins. And the standard that you're advocating is not righteous and therefore is perpetuating sin in the world and is not helping anyone but is indeed hurting people. And so we stand and we say we cannot repent of these things. They're not reality. And there are people who are trying to shape and control reality rather than submit to what God has revealed. Reality as God has defined it. Those who refuse to repent of faux sins... They're doing well. We're doing well. Put in a phrase. 
If we begin to name new sins, which in reality are not sins, and if we begin to claim that real sins are no longer sins, then we are tampering with God's law, which defines sin. And if you begin to tamper with God's law, it won't be long before you're tampering with his gospel. Do you see? Recovery of the gospel, reformation of churches. This leads me to my third final application. Fight the good fight, proclaim God's law, and we must proclaim God's gospel and not man's gospel to the world. There's great pressure to soften certain gospel themes. We must resist this pressure. There's, there's such a temptation now to ingratiate ourselves to the culture. And, and say, well, I don't, want to offend, I don't want to offend them. And I understand the impulse. I really do. We shouldn't be unnecessarily offensive. No one's saying, don't go be, don't go be dumb. Don't go be ignorant. But understand that... <laughs> There is a reason that our Savior hung on a cross. There's a reason that they killed the apostles and they killed the prophets. And the book of Acts is full of blood. There's a reason. Because if you're going to preach the gospel to somebody, you're going to tell them, you have done something so bad, you deserve to go to hell and suffer eternal fire away from God, the creator, and everything that is good. You can't say that without offending people. You just can't do it. So every time we preach the gospel, we're just dependent upon the Spirit. I mean, it's like we should anticipate, I'm either going to get punched in the face or the Spirit's going to open their eyes. And we can do that winsomely. We can do that saying, me too, I'm worse than you. I guarantee it. There's great pressure. Maybe not to compromise the whole gospel, but to soften certain parts of it and certain parts of the Christian faith. C.S. Lewis spoke of a way to reverse that and to do what's good and right and faithful in the world. He calls it resistance thinking. We need more of it in our day. This is what he said. He said, resistance thinking is a way of thinking that balances the pursuit of relevance on the one hand with a tenacious awareness of those elements of the Christian message that don't fit in with any contemporary age on the other. Emphasize only the natural fit between the gospel and the spirit of the age and we will have an easy, comfortable gospel that is closer to our age than to the gospel. But emphasize the difficult, the obscure, and even the repellent themes of the gospel, certain that they too are relevant even though we don't know how, and we will remain true to the full gospel. And surprisingly, we will be relevant not only to our own generation, but also the next, and the next, and the next. I would add that the spirit of the age is continually trying to shape the gospel into another gospel entirely. I remember listening to Christian radio some time ago, and one of the songs came on, and it was singing, said, am I more than flesh and bone? Am I really something beautiful? Yeah, I want to believe. Lord, help me believe that I'm someone worth dying for. It might have been the last time I listened to Christian radio. While it is absolutely true that you are more than flesh and bone, you are created in the image of God. 
And it's absolutely true that we are beautiful. There's a beautiful thing to be created in the image of God. It does not follow that we are worthy of the death of Christ. The gospel is the gospel of God's grace. It's all about God giving favor to people who don't deserve it and who are not worthy of it. And if you begin to invert the message where God helps us to be worthy and because we're worthy, Jesus comes and dies for us, we're distorting the gospel into a false gospel. That's an example of getting God's gospel muddled up with man's gospel. Man's gospel is presently in our times self-worth, self-reliance, self-help. You might call it selfianity. And while it is true that man is more than flesh and bone, he indeed is not worthy of the death of Christ. It is this gospel, God's gospel, the true gospel that we must proclaim. And we need to be prepared for something. Remember what the Apostle Paul tells us this gospel is to the Gentiles. It's folly. Fools for Christ. Ever increasingly, we must be willing to be fools for Christ. People may say that we're laughable. And we should say, along with David, I will become even more undignified in your eyes. Why? God's a great God. We're not him. He's the one who set the terms. He's the one who defines what the gospel is. How dare we say that we can come up with a better gospel? And then knowing it's not a gospel. It's not a gospel that saves. One of the, one of the challenging things when conflict comes in the church and people can be presented as, well, you're just a divider of the brethren. When in reality, you're, you're a unifier of the brethren. People say, oh, you're just being mean. You don't love people. In reality, if you're going to preach a false gospel to them, you don't love them. We must preach the true gospel because it's the true gospel that saves. Where are you going to find strength and energy, power to go out and do what must be done in our times and what's coming? You find it in Christ. You remember who Christ is. You remember what Christ has done. The Lord Jesus Christ is the one. It is in his hands entirely. And what's he doing? Well, he was born of the virgin. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. He made the good confession. He upheld the law of God. He fulfilled all righteousness. He has accomplished it for us. And he willingly laid down his life on the cross in our place for our sins. And this Christ has risen again. And he is alive today. And he's able to save to the uttermost all those who trust in him repenting of their sins. He is now sitting down at the right hand of Yahweh, God Almighty. He's ruling and reigning. His kingdom is advancing. We can't guarantee what will happen in our times, what will happen in our families, what will happen in our churches, what will happen in our nation. What we can guarantee is that Jesus will complete his conquest. He will have the nations as his heritage. So brothers and sisters, let's spend ourselves for Christ. 
just like our forefathers have. Proclaiming his gospel and his law to the ends of the earth. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we praise your glorious name and we confess apart from you we can do no good thing. We rejoice that your son Jesus Christ is exalted. You have exalted him. And we pray that he would be exalted right here on the earth. Give us courage that we would go forth proclaiming his truth for your glory and for man's good. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.